Good morning, grace and peace. Good to be here with you today. If you're joining us for the very first time, it's an honor that you have chosen to worship with us uh, today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you probably don't know this, but we've been going through a series of sermons entitled The Fight Within. And the idea for this series of sermons is to acknowledge that life is a battle. If you don't know this about life, you're not really living life because life is not easy for anyone. Life is a struggle. Life is a battle. But we're also acknowledging another piece of truth that the toughest battles that we will fight in this life are not necessarily the ones that we fight on the outside uh, based on what happens uh, through the different circumstances in life that we find ourselves in, but are the ones that we fight on the inside, uh, are the struggles that uh, exist inside of us, uh, battling fear, battling shame. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to wrestle with this idea of doubt, this feeling of doubt. Many of us here today, we've been through seasons in life that were characterized by deep doubt. Maybe you're going through a season in your life right now that there is just a lot of doubt. You've been asking the question, is this life worth living? Uh, is God loving? Does God care about me? Is it worth following him? You're asking a lot of questions. And uh, this sermon will deal with that. Now, I was thinking about doubt. And here's how I think about doubt. I, I see doubt as not an opponent, but as a good sparring partner. Okay? So let me explain to you what I mean. I uh, have a sparring partner that I train with uh, on and off. His name is Orlando. He, there's a, he's on the screen there, Orlando. He is a black belt in judo, a four-time Olympian. And I don't know if you knew this about jiu-jitsu, which is a martial art that uh, I've been devoting myself to for many, many years. You have the top game and you have the bottom game, okay? Your goal is when the fight starts at the top, on top, standing up is to take your opponent to the ground because that's where jujitsu does its magic, is, is on the ground. But you have to get your opponent to the ground. And because Orlando is so strong in the stand-up game, you know, he's a, a judo master, uh, he has helped me to evolve and to become better at my top game. Had I not sparred or trained with him or been afraid to spar with a four-time Olympian, I would not have evolved in my top game as I have. And that's how I think that the way that doubt works in our lives. Uh, doubt is a sparring partner that if you learn how to spar with, how to wrestle with it, you will evolve and you will grow in your faith as well. If you're afraid of doubt, if you quit and uh, while you're doubting, a season of doubt, you will not grow and you will not evolve. There was a um, British educator by the name of Francis Bacon. Maybe you've heard of him. He used to say this. There's a very famous quote from Francis Bacon that if you begin with answers, you will surely end in doubt. But if you're willing to begin with doubt, you will find the answers. And, and when I was Thinking about this quote in relationship to this topic and the text that we have in front of us, I couldn't help but to think of the story in the Bible about Jacob and the night before he is supposed to meet the brother in whom he has cheated uh, for the inheritance, his brother Esau. Uh, the night before, 
He knows he's going to face his brother, and he is afraid because he's not sure. He doubts whether his brother will embrace him. He is not sure whether he will be safe when he encounters his brother. He is not sure whether God will protect him and show him favor in that encounter. And it's in that moment of his life, in that condition of his soul, that God shows up in the form of an angel that wrestles with Jacob all night long. Jacob is asking for favor. Jacob is asking for a blessing. Uh, And the angel will not give it to him unless he wrestles him. And when the morning breaks, the angel touches the bone of his hip, submits him, but he does not give up. And the words come to him, your name will now be Israel because you have wrestled with God and you have prevailed. He was a different person in the morning after wrestling all night. But he was only a different person, think about this, because he wrestled. And the psalm that we're going to read from today is Psalm 73. It's a psalm uh, where this man by the name of Asaph, it's not a psalm of David, talks about his own experience with doubt. I believe that he writes this after going through a season of doubt. He looks back at what happened inside of him, and he records his experience. He journals his experience. And that is so helpful to us today because it allows us to see how doubt works in our lives and how we can grow from it. I believe that this Psalm 73 is an anatomy of doubt. So let's go to Psalm 73, and we're going to read a few verses from 73. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to read verses 13 through 26. This is what the Word of God says. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's jump to verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seems to me I was wearisome at this task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes O Lord, when you rose yourself, you despised them as phantoms. phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, underline that word, nevertheless, we're going to get back to it. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And, And these are some of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the word of the Lord. Like I said before we read the text, I believe that this psalm provides us an anatomy of doubt. 
because as the writer of the psalm processes his experience, he shares with us some key things that will allow us to process our own experience with doubt. He talks about where doubt comes from first. Uh, when we go through seasons of doubt, uh, how does it happen? How does it take place? Why are we plunged into moments and times and seasons like that in life? And we all go through that, but what, what's happening and what caused that to happen? That's the first thing that we'll talk about. Secondly, he teaches us how to wrestle with doubt. What's the healthy way that the Bible provides us to wrestle with doubt? And then thirdly and lastly, if we do it like the Bible tells us to do, what will happen? What will take place? How will we grow? How will we evolve? How will our faith be strengthened? Okay, so that's the third point. First, let's talk about where doubt comes from. And the first thing I'd like to say just right off the gate is that doubt not always comes from a bad place when it comes. Uh, sometimes it can come from a bad place, but oftentimes it does not come from a bad place. We were created in the image of a God who is a rational being. He has made us rational beings. And uh, because of that, we like to ask questions. We like to grow in knowledge. We are uh, trying to find answers for the many uh, aspects of life. And it's inevitable that we would ask questions about faith as well. This is what we have here in this psalm. And just because you doubt, you don't need to feel like you are a weak Christian, uh, somebody that does not have a strong faith. Uh, because when you read the Bible, the people that had the strongest faith or the people that had the strongest conclusions of faith were precisely those who were actively doubting. And this is an example of that, this psalm. Who is Asaph? Asaph is a professional worship leader. He is a professional minister. He's a Levite. That's the class of ministers that you had back in those days. He lived his life in the temple. He was a Bible writer. Is there anyone here that God has ever used to write scripture? I didn't think so. <laughs> but Asaph was a person that was used by God to write scripture. His mind was illuminated by the Spirit of God so that we would have these deep truths of God. And yet he's a person that admits that he'd struggled with doubt. Uh, when you read uh, the New Testament, the gospel accounts, you have people like Nathaniel that also struggled with doubt. He was a great Jewish man, and Jesus actually praises him for that. But when his friend Philip comes to him in the beginning of the Gospel of John and says, hey, I believe that we have found the Messiah. The Messiah that's been promised has finally arrived. And then he asks his friend, yeah, where did you find him? He says, well, he, he comes from this town by the name of Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can the Messiah of God come out of Nazareth? He questions and he doubts. And it's amazing that Philip, his friend, doesn't say, how dare you doubt the prophecy of Scripture? He says, come and see. And when he meets Jesus, after Jesus praises him, uh, Jesus tells him, look, I'm revealing this to you, but you'll see greater things. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus says, how dare you doubt that I am the Son of God come in the flesh? Jesus doesn't. It's the same thing that happens at the end of the gospel accounts after now Jesus had been raised from the dead. He is now uh, spending time with his disciples. In fact, he spends 40 days with his disciples post his resurrection. And we have this account of Jesus 
uh, being with his disciples in a room, having a meal. And uh, we read that, uh, not Nathaniel, but Thomas is sitting in the back. Thomas is one of Jesus' apostles, one of Jesus' disciples. And he is questioning whether that is Jesus or not. He is wondering if that is an illusion uh, or a mass illusion that they're experiencing because maybe they drank too much wine that night or that really is Jesus in front of them. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you, uh, Thomas, sitting there in the back, I know that you don't believe that. I know that you're doubting because Jesus sees his heart. Jesus sees Nathaniel's heart. Jesus sees Thomas's heart. Jesus sees your heart. And Jesus doesn't say, you're, you're just like a jerk filled with unbelief. He doesn't say that. Jesus invites him close and says, here is the evidence of my resurrection. Touch my wounds. Touch the scars. And we don't know if he did or not, but we know that he was transformed at that very moment. He makes this deep profession of faith, my Lord and my God, which most Bible commentators will say this is the deepest and greatest profession of faith that you find in scriptures. comes from a person of doubt. Jesus welcomes those who doubt, and he shows his kindness and mercy to those who doubt as well. In Mark chapter 9, I don't know if you remember this account, there is this boy who has been demon-possessed, and the disciples of Jesus have tried all they can to cast that demon out, and they're unsuccessful, to the point that the father now doubts whether his son will ever be delivered, and he's brought to Jesus. And the father says to Jesus, I want to believe this, but I don't know if I can. Can you help me in my unbelief? And Jesus shows mercy to him and delivers his son. The posture of Christianity towards those who question and doubt is not like religion that suppresses doubt. Many of you have been part of religious communities that when you started asking questions, like, what are you doing? Are you doubting God? Are you doubting the goodness of God? And it's neither like secularism that exalts those who doubt exalts skepticism. It has a much more balanced approach. It says, bring your doubts. It's okay to doubt. Bring it before the Savior because he is filled with mercy. And I like that because when I read uh, the book of Jude, I don't know if you've ever read Jude. Jude is written by the brother of Jesus, Jude. And uh, Jude says right there at the end of his long book of one chapter, in verse 15, as he gives recommendations to early believers, early followers of Jesus, says, have mercy on those who doubt. And here's why I think that Jude made that statement, being a brother of Jesus, because you also read in the gospel accounts that there was one point in Jesus' life and ministry that his own brothers doubted that he was the son of God. And he experienced the mercy of Jesus, who was his brother, when he doubted, and now he's saying, this ought to be our culture too. To those who doubt, show grace and mercy. Uh, which um, leads us to this point. If you are here today and if you are doubting, if you're going through seasons of doubt, I'm going to say to you that there's mercy from the Savior to you. And you've come, number two, to, the, to a community that's safe for you to question and for you to doubt. We want to walk alongside you as you process your doubts, you will not be turned away if you're asking questions because we believe that it's a necessary step in order to arrive at a robust faith. We know that doubt comes 
from a place of experience more than it comes from a rational exercise. And most people that arrive at a place of doubt, it's because they have experienced something in their lives that have allowed them to experience doubt. Uh, So when you read uh, the reason for Asaph to be in a place of doubt, it's very clear what the reason is. You you take verse 13 and you put it with verse 3 and you have the reason. In verse 13, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, you know, I lived a good life, but it's just not paying off. I've done good, but good has not come to me. I followed God, but it seems like he is not blessing me. He is not showing me favor. And then, and then he goes to verse 3, and this is what he says. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now what he says is this. I lived a good life, and it has not paid off. But now I see that there are people that have not lived a good life. They do not live good lives, but they have the good things of life. It's not adding up. I'm living for God. I'm not being blessed. Those who live a a life in rebellion to God seem to be doing a lot better than I am. What's going on? He's uh, describing a condition that's characterized by spiritual vertigo. Spiritual vertigo. You know, sometimes um, I'm also on the treadmill, right? I don't know if you go to the treadmill, hit the treadmill. Sometimes I hit the treadmill and I'm running on the treadmill and it's great when you're at the treadmill because you can control sort of like your environment. You can watch something. You know, you've had headphones. You can listen to, to stuff. And, and uh, sometimes my phone is right there on the dashboard. And, and sometimes people are texting me, you know, during my run. And, uh, and I think it's urgent sometimes. I'm wrong, but I think it's urgent. So I pick up the phone, and I, I'm running. I start looking at the phone like this and start answering the messages, and, and then I start drifting this way, right? Like, oh, gosh, I'm going to fall. Or sliding back. Oh, I got to make up for this, right? What's happening here? I've lost my focus. Instead of looking ahead, I'm looking to the side, and now I'm drifting. My body's experienced some sort of vertigo. And that's what he's saying and how he describes this experience of his. He has stopped looking at God, and he's looking at his surroundings. And because he has looked at his surroundings, he stopped looking at that which should be grounding his soul and started looking at things that are volatile around him. Now he begins to lose his spiritual balance. It's his experience that's causing him to experience doubt. It it does not come from a rigorous intellectual uh, exercise. It comes from experience. Now, there, there's this thing called the sociology of knowledge. I don't know if you heard about this, sociology of knowledge. And this is what it says, okay? There are sociologists and psychologists that have come together and they've studied. And, and this is what they have concluded, that we find most plausible the beliefs of those who we want to like us, okay? So let me give you an example of that, how doubt sometimes comes from a place of experience. There's a kid that was raised in a small town, Christian family, and it was all great. Then they go off to college in the big city, and they meet some sophisticated students, and they become friends with those students, and they want to be liked by those students. And then they begin to think this way. All the rednecks in my hometown believed in God. These smart, sophisticated people don't. Therefore, 
Is God really real? Should I keep my faith? You see what I'm saying? It always flows from a place of experience. I was talking to someone actually on the way to church, and they were telling me that they almost lost their foothold as well. Why? Because of mean Christians. <laughs> Some of you mean Christians have the potential of destroying someone's faith, just, just so you know. <laughs> and there was an experience in life that they said, how can these people say that they believe in God and they love God when they live lives this way and they treat others this way? It flows from a place of experience, exactly what's happening here. And so here's what I want you to do as well. You need to come to a place where you're questioning your doubts. Tim Keller says this is uh, the exercise of doubting your doubts. Where is it coming from? What's the experience that has shaped this season that I'm going through in life? And allow yourself to see the danger. So he sees the danger. What's the danger? He says, I almost slipped away. I almost lost my foothold. That's in verse 2. And what he means by that is I almost completely lost my belief in God. I almost did. He looks back and he says, I almost did. He saw the danger and he found rescue and hope before that actually, that tragedy, that, that emotional and spiritual tragedy actually took place, which he's, which, he, which he's trying to communicate to us. You have to be careful not to allow doubt to turn into unbelief. And we cannot confound doubt with unbelief. Unbelief is when you allow doubt to take deep roots in your heart and to suffocate your heart. And he says, I almost got to that point. I almost lost my foothold. That's an expression, again, for, for losing his faith. But he says he didn't. And so if, if that is you today, not only are you in a safe community to process your doubts, but we want to walk along, alongside you to help you to wrestle with it. That leads us, obviously, to point two. How do we wrestle with doubt? Now, there are four quick things that I want to go through with you uh, this morning. So, you know, pay attention. The first, the first way that you learn how to wrestle with doubt is by not getting lazy. Don't get lazy in front of doubt. Don't allow yourself to be overtaken by doubt. Don't settle in agnosticism, okay? I think that agnosticism, and I respect those who are agnostics, but at some point, agnosticism can be characterized by uh, intellectual or spiritual sloth. It's like, oh, there's no answers. There can't be any answers. And so I'm just agnostic and I'll be agnostic forever, okay? Uh, don't do that. Let me go to my illustration from the beginning of the sermon, my sparring with Orlando, my friend who's a black belt in judo. Now, before I actually got better at the stand-up game, uh, before it became harder for others to take me down, Orlando dropped me many times. I fell on my butt fell on my back. One time he threw me over and I fell on my head. And I praise God because I could still walk after that. Many times. Now, I, what I could have done is after a couple sessions with him and being dropped like crazy, I could have said, I'm not training with this guy anymore. There's no way around this. And if I had done that, what would happen? What would have happened would be that I would never evolve in my stand-up game. But before... But before I did that. I was committed to evolving, so I kept showing up every single time. And I'm like, you know, I was dropped six times last round. This round, I'm going to only be dropped three times, and then two times, and then one time, 
And then it became hard for him to drop me too. You see what I'm saying? That's the same thing uh, uh, when it comes to your wrestling with doubt, of how you learn how to spar with doubt. If in your lowest moment you give up, guess what will happen? You will never grow and you will be in that place for a very long time. So you have to keep coming forward. You have to keep asking questions. You have to keep inquiring. You have to keep coming to church. You have to keep reading the Bible. You have to keep praying. You have to keep pressing on. You cannot give up. Don't give in. Don't get lazy. What does he do here in this passage? He keeps coming forward. Wait, where do you find that, Pastor? Well, we'll go to verse 17. Look at verse 17. All of this is happening. He's describing what he's struggling with. And in verse 17, he says, until, until, until it came to an end. All of this came to an end. When what? When I entered the sanctuary of God. When I entered the sanctuary of God. What does this mean? It means that he actually went to church. And he saw the people of God worshiping God and reciting truths about God and singing to God and hearing the word of God being proclaimed back to him. The worst thing that you can do in a dark season of doubt is to isolate yourself. It's to stop praying. It's to stop worshiping God privately and corporately. He says, it was so key to me. In fact, if you read verses 1 through 16, he speaks to God in the third person. But verses 17 onward, he now changes to the first person. God is intimate and God is personal because he's entered the sanctuary of God. He keeps pressing forward. What we've been saying here throughout this series is that the Psalms provide us a third way to deal with our feelings. How should you deal with our fe your feelings of anger, frustration, anxiety? How should you deal with your feelings? Well, religion tells you to stuff it in. Shame and honor cultures tells you to stuff it in. It's a, shine, a sign of weakness to show your feelings. Secularism tells you to spill them out. But the Bible says don't do either. Process your feelings with God. That's what you should do. Take them as raw as they are and process them with God. And this is what he's doing. He says, God, I almost doubted. Not that you exist, but I doubted your goodness towards me. I, I, I doubted your kindness towards my life. When I saw this happening, I, I thought that you didn't care about me. He is bringing his raw feelings to God. He keeps showing up. That's what it means to enter the sanctuary of God. And so you keep doing that. And when you do, it will lead you to a second practice that we find here in the psalm, which is, uh, first of all, he doesn't get lazy. He enters the sanctuary of God. He keeps moving forward. But uh, secondly, he uncovers his heart. Look at verse 13. I think this, this is a fantastic verse. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, you know what he's doing here? He is being brutally honest about his motivations for being a, a person in a relationship with God. He is saying, when I face that season of doubt, I, I question your goodness because I have lived a good life. And you know what he's admitting here when he's saying, all in vain have I done this. He's saying, the reasons why I got into this 
was to get things from you, God, not to get you. The reasons why I got into this relationship was so that you would serve me, not me serve you. He's admitting, he's admitting. Because otherwise he wouldn't say, all in vain have I done this. When we go through difficult moments in life, we're always asking the question, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And you, you know what I think God says to us and the way God responds to us? He asks us the same question. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think that I'm allowing this to happen in your life? Have, have you ever thought about it this way? We ask God, God, why is this happening? God is asking that back to you. Why do you think this is happening? Why are you feeling this way? Did you get in so that I could serve you? Or did you get in so that you can serve me? What's going on? And he's honest with himself. And he says, my motivations were dead wrong. And that's why he confesses it this way. He, he, he calls it out. He names it. That's breakthrough. Breakthrough is when you name your deficiencies in an honest way. When you name your false hopes in an honest way. That's what he does. Do you have the guts and the courage to be this honest? To uncover your heart before God? He doesn't get lazy and then he uncovers his heart before God. The third thing that he does is, or the third thing that happens as he opens his eyes. He opens his eyes. Or should I say his eyes are open. And when you take verses 18 and 19 and you compare it with verses 25 and 26. In fact, when you take verses 18 and 19 and you put him with verses 25 and 26, you begin to have an insight of what he now begins to see. So in verses 18 and 19, this is what he says, truly you set them in slippery places. In fact, verse 18 happens after verse 17, I entered into the sanctuary of God. Verse 18, he says, truly I set, you set them, you, the wicked, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utterly, uh, swept away utterly by terrors. And then in verse 25 and 26, now if, it, if there was a seamless uh, reading in verse 25, you would read, whom I have in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, and my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Put those two things together. How, is that, how are his eyes open? First, he begins uh, to see his short-sightedness. He said, I was making a conclusion about what success and uh, an abundant life looks like just by observing a moment of my life compared to other people's lives. He is taking uh, uh, a very small fraction and portion of life, which by the way, our lives are already short, right? They're, they're really, really short. Um, when I was in my 20s, I, I had people come to me and say, hey, Life is really, really short. And I was like, yeah, 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 stop talking about that. And then I got, I got now to 46, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I think what they were saying makes sense. And if you're there in your 60s or 70s, you know that for sure, that life is short. It really is. And so he takes a portion of what life is, because life goes into eternity. And he makes a conclusion of what true joy and happiness is, and it looks like a comfortable life. Uh, filled with uh, possessions 
and filled with parties and, and good food and good drinking. Yeah, th- those things are good, but that's not what life consists of. And Jesus talked about that. Jesus says the life of a man does not consist in the abundance of his belongings. Because we're talking about life and the full perspective, and he begins to see that. And he begins to get into that idea that you probably heard before that the poorest people in the world are those that all they have is wealth. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, when, when I look now into that perspective, I now should pity them because everything in this life is going to be taken away from us at some point in time. Did you know that? Uh, We live and we hold so tight to these things that we have, but even your relationships, even the best of relationships at one point will be taken away from you. Somebody's going to die first. And he's saying now, when when I put that into perspective of eternity, because he's saying my relationship with you is the real treasure. It will go into eternity. That's what he says in verses 25 and 26. When I put it into perspective of eternity, these people, they actually should be pitied. He begins to have his eyes opened about what ultimate reality looks like. And, 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 then, that, and then that launches him into um, this last step, which is he sees the grace of God. So he, he doesn't get lazy. He enters the sanctuary of God in prayer and worship, both uh, privately and corporately. Then he uncovers his heart before God. He's brutally honest about his motivations. Then his eyes are open, and he sees things in full sight. He's removed from this short-sightedness where he is being overtaken by doubt. And now he is finally able to see the grace of God. Where do you see the grace of God here? Let's go to verses 22 to 24. It's the last thing. He goes to God and he says, I I was brutish and ignorant. I was a beast towards you. Look how honest he is. Well, you know what he's saying to God? He's saying, when I was going through this, I was angry at you, God. I was brutish and I was beastly towards you. I wanted to bite you. (laughs) Angry at you. I told you to underline the word nevertheless. Because the next thing he says in verse 23 is, nevertheless, I am continually, continuously with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. counsel, And afterward, you will receive me in the glory. He says, God, when, when this was happening, I, I questioned your goodness. I was angry at you. I wanted to bite you like a beast. And you could have said, go off on your own. Will you never let go of my hand? God, when I was in that state, you never left my side. God, and and more than that, you were leading me into glory. And then amazing that in the seasons of our lives where we are questioning the goodness of God, when we are questioning the love of God for us, you would think that God would abandon us because that's what we do when people question our integrity. When people question our friendship, when people question our love, we walk away from them. 
But God never walks away from those who will ever question his goodness. In this moment of your life right now, as you are questioning him, he is still by your side. And in the future, when you question him, he will still be by your side because he's a God filled with grace. And you know what's going on here? At least what I think is going on here. Because this happens after verse 17. I think that once he entered the sanctuary of God, he was able to understand grace fully. Because in the sanctuary of God, there was an altar known as the mercy seat. And, uh, and in that altar, uh, animals were slaughtered and the blood was spilled over. And when animals were slaughtered in that altar, it meant that your relationship with God was made right because someone paid for your wrongdoing and your sin, and that was that animal that was slaughtered. You deserve to be in that altar, but an animal was there instead, and so your relationship with God can be repaired. It's grace. God allows for a substitute so that the relationship is repaired. You know what he sees there? He sees the mercy of God in that. And you and I have a better sight into the sanctuary of God every time we enter because there's no longer a physical sanctuary. Jesus said, I don't know if you remember this, by, by the Mount of Olives, he says, uh, looking at the temple, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about himself, that he would die and on the third day he would rise. And then the only reason why you and I can be in the presence of God is because of Jesus. There's no way for you to enter the sanctuary of God without the lamb that takes you into the sanctuary of God. That when you accept and receive that which Christ has done for you, you are permanently in the sanctuary in the presence of God. That's why you can pray. That's why you can worship. That's why you can come to church and not be stricken by God when you do these things, even though he sees the dishonesty in your, God, in your heart, because someone paid in your place. And it's when you are able to see this grace and hold on to this grace as he does that your heart is healed. You know why? Because grace is the greatest antidote against doubt. The greatest antidote against doubt. You can go through life and question why you're going through what you're going through, but you cannot question whether God loves you or not, or, or not when you look at the cross. You cannot say God doesn't love me or why don't you love me when you look at the cross, how can you say that? You need grace to pull you out of the pit of despair. You need grace in order to spar and to overcome doubt. You need grace to experience breakthrough. And that's what's available to you and I today. And if you do, remember if I said if you spar with doubt, if you wrestle with doubt in this way, what will happen Number one, you will be transformed. Look how verse 25 changes from the rest of the psalm. He is completely transformed. It's almost like you're talking to a different person. There's a new heart. There's a new perspective that is taking place in the life of the one who struggled with doubt because he went through those steps. And the last thing that will happen to you if you do that is you will train your heart. Verse 26 my flesh and my heart may fail. He says, I may go through seasons like that where I may look at the surroundings. I'm such a weak person because I'm a human. My flesh may fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You will train your heart so that next time you go through moments of doubt, next time you go through moments of darkness in life, 
you will stay there a shorter amount of time than you did before. And spiritual growth looks like that. It's training your heart to spar against doubt so that the next time you're stronger and the next time you're stronger and the next time you're stronger and you evolve and you grow and you become a person of robust faith. And here's what I believe today, what God is doing in our midst through this word as I was studying this text and praying. Here's what I believe. I believe that God wants you to grow in your relationship with him. I believe that God wants to take you to new ground. I believe that God wants to strengthen your faith. Don't be content and satisfied where you're at. But you need to be willing to do the hard work, to press forward, to wrestle with your doubts, to go to him, to do it even when it's hard, to do it even when it seems in the surface that it does not make sense. He wants you to do that. He wants to strengthen your faith. Now, and all that it takes, all that it takes is that you would move towards him. So I want to invite you to pray right now. I want you to bow your heads. And if you find yourself in that place, or if you know someone that's in that place, that you would just pray this prayer. God, give me the strength to enter into your sanctuary. Pray that. If you're praying for someone, you pray, God, help me to lead them into the sanctuary. God, I'm weak, but give me the strength to pray. God, I'm not sure of the future, but give me the strength to worship you right now. God, I don't feel like being with other Christians, but give me the strength to be in community, to commit to community. Pray, God, give me the strength to to pray with this person. God, give me the strength to worship in the presence of this person. God, give me the grace and the mercy that you've had towards me so that I can showcase that towards others and I would be obedient to your word which is to have mercy on those who doubt. Father, we believe that your son can do all this for us. And in his name we pray, amen. And I want to invite you to stand up because like I said, this is how you strengthen your heart is by entering the sanctuary in in a posture of worship and praise. This is the first step for us. And so I I want to invite you to worship like you have never before. I, I want you to allow your heart to be uncovered before God as you worship And may God start that work in your life in this very moment. Let's worship him right now.